Welcome to What Happened to You, the podcast that interviews footballers of the past today about their interviews from the past. Don't worry, it will all make sense when you listen. On this episode, supported by the set pieces, we talk to former Leicester City, Arsenal and England striker Alan Smith about his Focus interview for Shoot Magazine from 1983-84. You can find the original interview on our Twitter feed at WHTYpod and on our dedicated channel over at The Set Pieces, www.thesetpieces.com. Alan Smith. Birthplace and date. Hollywood, Birmingham on the 21st of November 1962. And your height? Six foot two and three quarters. And do you still weigh 12 and three quarter stone? No, I weigh 13 stone 10. Wow. You're doing pretty pretty well then. (laughs) I'm doing okay, yeah, yeah. So, uh, welcome to What Happened to You, Alan. How's things going at the moment? You're obviously keeping yourself busy now the football's back up and running. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're lucky that um, we've still got somewhere to go, you know, uh, get out of lockdown, leave the house and uh, go to a football match. It's it's not as we know it, you know, as, as everybody knows, but it's better than nothing. So, uh, no, I'm enjoying it. Well, um, I suppose most people will associate with Arsenal. Or George Graham's Arsenal is probably a better way to categorise the club at that time. Uh, yeah. And we'll come back to speak about Arsenal a bit later on. Um, of course, he had a lot of success there. But this shoot interview that we're looking at today from 1984, uh, when you were still making your name at Filbert Street with Leicester City. Uh, and there you are in that very fetching blue Admiral kit with the thick white pinstripes mm. and the very short shorts. Um, but if we go back even further than Leicester, you started with your local non-league side, Alva Church and then signed for the Foxes for the princely sum of £22,000 in 1982. So, were you a late bloomer? Uh, and did you have a proper job, or did you stay on at school before you got as far as Leicester? Was I a late bloomer? I suppose I was to a certain extent. When, when I was 16, some people that I'd played for Birmingham County with were offered um, apprenticeships. You know, one went to Aston Villa, and I think, there were one or two others. Mark Walters was about my age, actually. Uh, you know, the the uh, villain, uh, Liverpool player. Um, but uh, no, I, I went to a grammar school. I passed my 11 plus. I went to a boys' grammar school. Uh, I chose that one because they played football, not rugby, and uh, stayed on to do my A level, A levels. Um, and I did enjoy my schoolwork. Uh, and then I stayed, And then I thought, well, you know, in the absence of any other offers, I think I'll try and go to university. So um, in the end, I went to Coventry Polytechnic, uh, which is called the university now, I think, <laughs> all of them are, um, to do modern languages, French, German and Spanish. Be, uh, I did French and German at A-level, but I did Spanish from scratch there. But during that time, I was uh, playing for Alf Church, um, so training twice a week back in Birmingham um, and playing on a Saturday. And it, it was a great year, a brilliant year. Um, playing you know with seniors with with lads some of whom had come down from from professional level uh and others that were, were trying to make it but i was the young lad in the squad really um and and scouts used to come and watch us there it's good standard of football southern league midland 
and uh, they, uh, you know, all the Midlands clubs came, uh, as well as Leicester, Villa, Blues, Coventry, West Brom, all those. Manchester United came as well, actually, one night. Ron Atkinson turned up in his Rolls Royce and uh, his sheepskin coat, uh, and, he, and he went before the end. Um, but uh, uh, it was Leicester that offered the money, as you say. It was actually 15,000 plus seven add-ons with appearances. So, uh, Alf Church were able to buy some new floodlights with that. There you go. They should be renaming the floodlights after you then. <laughs> yeah, they might have. I don't know. Uh, and by my reckoning, you're one of just a couple of players who represented England at both full international level and the England C team for semi-professionals uh, since 1979. Yeah. yeah, did you know that? I did. Well, for a long time, I was the only one to have done it, I think. And then Steve Guppy, I don't know if you've got the same information as me. Yep. Steve Guppy, and I think he only got one cap for England, mm-hmm. uh, did he? That's um, right. So Belgium. I was, yeah, I was a bit miffed when that happened. You know, I <laughs> wanted to be out there on my own. Um, but uh, yeah, during that year with Alf Church, I, I played for England um, semi-pro, as we called it, which was brilliant. Uh, we went to Gibraltar. Played a friendly over there. We had a tournament up in Aberdeen. And again, that was a great learning curve. Um, and you've mentioned your dad here as being the biggest influence on your career. And you said that he was he, he sort of more of a coaxer than a, than a pusher. Yeah, he was. He was. He wasn't. Um, he couldn't always come because he worked long hours. He worked for Lucas's, the, the motor spare uh, company uh, or motor parts. Uh, he'd come at the weekends. I mean, in the week when we had a game, my mum would take me on the bus, you know. Sometimes we had some county games in the week. So she she would take me and then dad at the weekend. But uh, yeah, he wasn't one to be shouting and bawling on the touchline. We might have a quiet word on the way home in the car. Yeah, there, there were one or two dads, one in particular, that never stopped for the full match, shouting at his boy. And, you know, we all felt sorry for him. Um, because you could see him kind of shrinking as his dad's voice got louder and louder. Uh, but no, my daddy, yeah, I mean, he, he didn't play very seriously himself. He, he was quite short, but he was a goalie, kind of played parks football. But he loved his football and uh, he loved coming to watch me play. And obviously when I turned pro and played for Leicester and Arsenal, he was in seventh heaven. Well, um, being from Birmingham, you had any number of clubs in and around the city to, to support. But you said that for some unknown reason, you followed Manchester City as a kid and you most admired Colin Bell. Uh, are you sticking by Manchester City? Yeah. I'd, well, they won the title in 68, didn't they? Uh, and I was six at that time. So maybe that was what it was. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I had all the posters on the wall at a young age. Uh, and I just love Colin Bell. Yeah, I mean, they had a great team. Tony Book, Franny Lee, Bell, uh, oh, all sorts of names. But, uh, you know, I did love them back then. And actually, the Sunday team that I, p- I went on to play for called Wast Hills Athletic, which is where Birmingham City train now, actually, the playing fields. Um, uh, the groundsman there, who became the manager of the Sunday team, uh, he used to be the groundsman at Main Road. So one day he said, oh, you know, he knew I supported City or had supported. He says, we'll go up and have a tour of the ground. And uh, we went up and had a tour and everything. And then we went into the dressing room. I couldn't believe it. We we're going to go into the dressing room. And there was Colin Bell uh, sat on the treatment table. And he was stark naked as well. <laughs> I was just a young lad. So it was quite, quite shocking for my hero to be sat there. 
in front of me in the buff. But uh, yeah, I love I love it. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, now they've asked you in this interview about your most memorable match, uh, and to that point uh, in 1984, um, we, you said that it was a home game for Leicester on the 12th of November 1983 against Manchester United because, as you said, you were up against the guys that you'd been watching on TV not much earlier. Um, it was a 1-1 draw in front of 24,409 at Filbert Street. Do you have any rec- recollections whatsoever about that game? Did I score? I don't know. Um, don't you don't know. So. <laughs> well, the, the one, I don't, Really, but the game that would have surpassed it was a few, a couple of years later. Gary Lineker had left because uh, remember me and Gary McAllister scored. I scored two, and Gary got one, uh, and we beat them three nil, I think it was. And they got locked in the dressing room afterwards. And it was Ron Atkinson, the manager, funnily enough, who'd come to see me play for Alf Church. You know, Brian Robson, all sorts of famous names, Remy Moses, loads of them. Uh, so that was a big, big day for us all. Uh, uh, big day for me as well to get a couple of goals against Manchester United. But uh, obviously that previous game at the time of asking was, was the highlight, but this one surpassed it. Well, at that point, you hadn't won any club honours, but um, you helped Leicester get promoted in 82-83 when you forged that very prolific strike partnership with some bloke called Lineker. Uh, and with two creators on the flanks like Steve Linex and Ian Wilson, it's no wonder you both caught the eye of bigger clubs. Um, was the partnership with Gary something that took uh, a long time or did it just come together very quickly? Because yours and his style would have blended quite naturally, I suppose. Yeah, it was it was quite a natural partnership. We didn't have to work on it too much, I don't think, because what each of us liked to do suited the other. I was a back-to-goal kind of classic target man, flicking it on, whatever, holding it up, Gary lurking on the last line. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it, it did pretty much work straight away. I remember, uh, I remember the first time I played with Gary, actually, was a pre-season game that 82-83 uh, season, Northampton came across, brought the reserves in the first team. I was in the reserves, playing their reserves. And at half-time, Gordon Mill, their manager, whistled, called me across. Alan, you're going on for the second half. And I went on, partnered Gary up front, and I got a hat-trick uh, in that second half. So from that point on, I was, with, I was with the first team, and I started the first game of the season against Charlton. Um, and yeah, we, it was pretty quick. We forged... Uh, a good relationship without having to try too hard. Goes Alan Smith, Lineker, him off Dodd, only half cleared. Oh, what a goal from Alan Smith! What a goal that was! I'm going to be mischievous now and I'm going to ask you whether Gary was your best partner or was that Ian Wright? Well, I think I clicked easier with Gary. Righty, I think, I mean, they were both brilliant finishers, um, but I think Righty was probably the best finisher of the two. He was just instinctive, an absolute natural. But Righty was, he was one on his own. Everything was off the cuff. You never knew what he was going to do. And it was funny because when he turned up at Arsenal, we were quite a structured side. We'd do shadow in training, you know, and when the ball's there, I'll go here and somebody will come behind me. But, you know, George Graham tried to do it with Wrighty and he was all over the shop. And, and in the end, he just stick the ball in the net and, and the gaffer gave up in the end. So it was difficult, really, forging a partnership with him. Uh, mm. And you kind of just had to play off him. 
So I'd, I'd have to say Gary was the more, the smoother kind of relationship. Well, we'll come back to your career on the field in a bit, Alan, but now we're going to get to pick through some of the fun bits. Uh, and now firstly, your nickname. Uh, you already, you'd already picked up the nickname Smudger, which has stuck for the last 36 years, but apparently, according to the, your, your answers in the shoot interview, there were others. <laughs> well, I didn't know it until I went there, but the nickname for Smith in Leicester is Smeggy. Um, which isn't the greatest of nicknames, but I'll never forget uh, a few years later uh, when I joined Arsenal, me and Tony Adams we were with England, and on the Saturday we, we weren't doing anything and we went to, went to watch Watford play, and we were kind of sat up in the, uh, one of the uh, private boxes, sat outside, whatever. It was Watford, Leicester, and the Leicester fans saw me somehow sat up there and they were going smeggy smeggy give us a wave smeggy give us a wave uh, and tone's gone smeggy smeggy i said oh yeah yeah it's a leicester nickname for smith so he used to call me that from then on um but it, yeah it was it was smudged to be honest with you for most uh, all, all my career really um well your car at the time was a ford capri 2.0 s and apparently you were still living, yeah, you were still living at home with your parents in Birmingham. Uh, were Leicester just not paying you enough to get a mortgage? I'd, well, my girlfriend, well, she lived in North Birmingham. I don't know. I, I just thought, well, if I go over there, I'm going to have to be driving back to Leicester, uh, back to Birmingham again. So I just stayed with my mum and dad. And as it happens, there were a few lads. Steve Linex lived West Bromway. Bob Hazel joined the club. And there were a few more lads, and we all used to meet at Corley Services on the M6, halfway between Birmingham and Leicester. We'd park our cars and take it in turns to go from there. So it wasn't a hassle, really. It was kind of just a bit under an hour. And we were hardly ever late. I can't remember being late. Um, so we, we did it that way, yeah. Um, but the Ford Capri, I loved. I, I had another two after that. I had two 2.8 injections. Uh, but that two-litre S was a favourite. It had the tennis racket headrests, the Vaccaro seats, and it was a lovely car, light blue it was. It was, it was a beautiful car. Um, to your music taste now, uh, and when they've asked you uh, the answers you've given, it feels like you're reading straight from the cover of the first Now That's What I Call Music compilations, because we've got Diana Ross, Lionel <laughs> Richie, Michael Jackson, and Culture Club, who are, who are pictured here in the interview uh, with you. Um, yeah. Still, still favourites of yours? Uh, yeah. Well, I've always loved Motown. Still do to this day. Absolutely love Motown. So, you know, most of those artists uh, came under that banner. Uh, Culture Club, yeah, they were just of the time, really, weren't they? I think, you know, Diana Ross was my favourite. Uh, I love her. Um, went to see her. i never forget, went to see her in concert once. We were playing away somewhere. So I met my girlfriend... And Ian Andrews, who was our goalkeeper, his girlfriend, they went straight to the NEC in Birmingham. Me and Ian, we were late. We've parked up. We've ran through the car park. And, you know, she was playing in this huge hangar. And I could just hear her from a distance off, you know, hear the voice of Diana Ross. It was just magical moments. <laughs> I just loved it. And then uh, she came through the audience singing Reach Out and Touch. And my girlfriend said, put your hand out, put your hand out. So I did. And she held my hand. <laughs> so that was another thrill. Um, so, uh, yeah, and, and I, I remember actually in another, I think it was another shoot, uh, Q&A, um, it had said girlfriend and I'd said Penny, who's now my wife. 
and then but there was a picture of Diana Ross next to it um because obviously I, I they'd said favorite music as well but my auntie who was getting on a bit said oh is that is that she, she said she said to my mum is that Alan's girlfriend she thought Diana Ross was my girlfriend you know chance to be a fine thing she had a f- yeah. few more quid than my girlfriend <laughs> <laughs> well you would have been ahead of your time as well with pop stars and footballers getting married and all that sort yeah, of stuff exactly yeah exactly yeah. Now, um, I've read enough of these profiles to appreciate that um, your choice of favourite football and favourite other sportsmen can actually reflect uh, on your own sporting philosophy and or personality in general. So what would you say these choices say about you? Because you've got Trevor Brooking as your favourite current player back in 1984. And from another sport, you most admired Swedish tennis legend Bjorn Borg. Now, I note that you've eschewed the, the popular choices that recur in these things, uh, Alex Higgins, Ilya Nastasi, George Best, you know, so you, your favourites tend to be different types of characters than, than most of the choices we see in these things. Well behaved, don't they? Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> tricky Trev. I mean, what a player he was. And um, I, I loved him. He was so elegant. And i never forget, uh, I think it must have been my second season in professional football, my first in the top flight. We played West Ham, probably at Filbert Street. The morning after, I've gone to pick up the paper and there's me in a tussle with Trev. And I, that that did it for me. I thought, oh my God, I'm playing. I'm actually playing against Trevor Book. And I loved him. He was a great player. Um, Bjorn Borg, yeah. I mean, he was, looking back, he was a bit boring to, to kind of watch, wasn't he? But um, he was just so efficient, just got on with it. Uh, he, he just did it. Yeah, I liked him. Um, but... Uh, I suppose I was never one for the for the bad boys so much. I don't know. That's why I only got a book once in my career, maybe. You know? well, that, that makes you a bit of a savage compared to Gary Lineker. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it were different times. Yeah. Neither Gary or myself did much tackling. Uh, we didn't answer back to the refs, really. Um, I mean, I now, if I was playing, I'd have no chance, you know, because... The amount of times I used to jump and I'd catch the centre half with I had I had really sharp elbows, you know. I I cut many a centre half. I remember I uh I, I made a gash in Steve Foster's uh, forehead underneath the headband when he was playing for Luton. I somehow managed to cut him underneath the headband. He had to go off for stitches and he came back on and he went, Ah, you did mean smudger, that was intentional, I'm gonna have you, you know. And um you know, that's just how it was. You, you could do that without being particularly nasty. Uh, I, I broke uh, Paul Elliott's leg, actually. He he came in from the back and I, I think I must just lifted my studs up and he's gone into the back of my studs. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I got booked in the FA Cup final in 93 for knocking the ball away. I went in a little tangle with um, Graham Hyde, the little midfielder for Sheffield Wednesday. And uh, we both went, both went to the deck and I've knocked the ball away to give myself time to get off and get back in position. And the refs booked me for ungentlemanly conduct. So you, you get it, you get a letter in the post. So I had it framed, you know, ungentlemanly conduct. That'll do for me. Yeah, yeah. just the one. Um, now I'm going to read this next one verbatim. Uh, favourite actor or actress? I know it may sound odd, but my favourites are the 50s film star Cary Grant and Jean Alexander, who plays Hilda Ogden in Coronation Street. Honestly, there's nothing odd about either of those, Alan. I mean, I love Jean Alexander myself. She was just like my nan. Well, she was a brilliant actress because she was 
so, you know, her character in Coronation Street was so different to how she was, wasn't it? She was quite posh. Mm -hmm. She lived lived alone all her life. She was a spinster. I, I just loved that. And uh, the relationship we had with Stan, uh, her husband, it was quite, you know, touching. Um, and uh, she was a great comic actress as well. Uh, I, I used to love her, yeah. You know, Cary Grant. <laughs> Different in those, those old films, you know, he was he was Mr. Smooth, wasn't he? But mm. um, yeah, Gene Alexander, you're not going to beat that. Well, you know, obviously, you've admitted here to being a Coronation Street fan, but your other TV love at the time was uh, American comedy Sergeant Bilko from the 50s. Oh, yeah, yeah, Phil Silvers, yeah, a brilliant. brilliant comic uh, actor, and uh, those old black and whites. I, I've not seen them for. For many years, but um, I loved them. Yeah, I mean, my favourite now is Curb Your Enthusiasm, and uh, you know, another American classic, Larry David. But uh, back then, yeah, I used to love. I used to love Sergeant Bilker. Right. Let's look back again at this season uh, for Leicester, uh, and your long-term ambitions were as expected uh, to be happy in your personal and professional life, and to win international honours. And your ambition for 90, 1984 was to help Leicester climb the first division table, and for you to have a successful year. So let's have a look, see how you did with those. Well, Leicester were looking dodgy at the opening part of the season because you just won. Uh, one lead point from the first nine games, but then a great run either, either side of Christmas, where you were particularly prolific in, in front of goal, helped you climb away from trouble, and eventually you finished safe in 15th. So I think you've ticked both boxes, I'd say, there. Um, how do you remember that season then? It was it was pretty similar to the other season. I think we came 15th twice on the trot, finished with the same number of points. We, we were always looking below us, you know. We were always worried. But then we'd have a spurt where invariably we'd be able to score goals with, with Stevie Linex, Gary and myself and that, Andy Peake from midfield. Um, but, you know, we'd let him in as well. Uh, so it was never dull. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, we, we had, um, we were a bit of a bogey team for Liverpool back then. And, you know, I was looking at the results for my, uh, the book that I wrote a couple of years back, my autobiography. And, Boxing Day, I don't know if it was this season, but we've beat them up there, we've, we've drawn. I don't, I don't think there was a time hardly where Liverpool beat us. You know, they were the best team in the country. Um, so, yeah, we, we had our moments. We, we were a bit up and down. We, we didn't achieve that consistency. But I think we were a good team to watch because there was always something going on. Well, I promised we would talk about Arsenal. And when you moved there, George Graham was already beginning to push the club on to challenge for honours. So when you got there, uh, and there was a lot of youngsters coming through, wasn't there? Was it obvious to you, uh, apart from it being a, a bigger club than Leicester, that, that it was going to be a team and a club destined for great things in the, in the coming years? Well, I was hoping so. That's why I joined. And, and you're right, I saw the kind of youth players coming through, led by Tony Adams and David Rocastle, Michael Thomas, Paul Merson, Niall Quinn was there, Martin Hayes. There were loads of lads coming up. Um, and uh, George had been in place for a year, and, you know, I'm, I'm sat at home watching him on the telly, and you're thinking, oh, he looks a hard taskmaster, but he also looked the part, and he looked like somebody that was going to take the club forward because he was obviously strict, demanding. Um, so when the chance came, yeah, yeah, I was, I was pleased, and I always say it, being a footballer, it's so much is about timing. At what time do you join the club? Which club? 
you know, I joined Arsenal just at the, on the cusp of some really exciting times and, uh, you know, much better players than me join clubs where it, it, it doesn't go right for them because the club's not, the club's struggling. So I was lucky, but um, yeah, we, uh, we got to the League Cup final uh, my first year, lost to Luton Town, having won the League Cup final uh, the year before. Um, and then we won the league the year after. So, yeah, yeah, it, it was good timing on my part. Uh, well, we, we talked about that most memorable match, uh, or not so memorable now for Leicester, um, that you were asked at the time of the interview. Um, but given all the great games you did play in then for Arsenal, cup finals and everything else, uh, which one would you choose as being the the, the absolute standout? Oh, uh, definitely um, 26th of May, 1989, when we beat Liverpool 2-0 up there to win the title. First time Arsenal had won the, won the championship for 18 years. And to do it in those circumstances, last kick of the game virtually, it was just, it was uh, comic book stuff. Um, mm. Because again, you know, Liverpool, they hardly got, but they'd gone on a brilliant run. I mean, they were the team to beat. Uh, if you finished above them, you knew you'd be winning the league. But uh, they were such a fantastic side. John Barnes just was in his pomp. You know, Alan Hansen at the back. Um, and um, you know, you couldn't get the ball off them half the time when you went up to Anfield, especially. So to go up there and have to win by two goals and to, and to do it in the last second, it was it was an amazing night. An amazing night. Uh, I'll never forget it. The, the whole spectre of Hillsborough was hanging over the game, so there was such emotion as well. The, the Liverpool lads had been attending funerals, and you know, I think that had an effect on them. Um, kind of emotionally as much as physically so they weren't quite themselves on the night and we sensed that and so when I got the goal shortly into the second half you know we, our chests were pumped out and we thought here we go we've got a chance here we've got a chance it was the fastest game I've ever played and the ball never sat still for a second and the noise within Anfield that night it was deafening how did you, I mean, obviously you, you did get your, your fringe onto the ball to get that first goal, but how how nervous were you in that? Because there was like, what was it, a minute or two afterwards where the Liverpool players were, were complaining, saying you were offside or and, and the referee and the linesman were having a, a, a discussion about it. Did, did you just get that feeling that, oh, you know, the referee here under all this intense pressure and scrutiny at Anfield, under the circumstances you've just described, did you think they're going to chalk this off here? Yeah, no, convinced they would because there were about five Liverpool players gathered around the ref who'd gone over to the linesman to have a little chat. And we only had David O'Leary there as our spokesperson. And uh, they had some big characters, you know. Hanson was in there, Steve McMahon barking away, Ronnie Whelan. And uh, you thought he's going to cave under the pressure. But afterwards, the ref said, I only went over to the linesman. I was always going to give the goal. I only went over there just to calm things down, to show everybody that I'm consulting. Blah, blah, blah. So when he turned around and pointed to the centre circle, I mean, we couldn't believe it. And we thought, wow, here we go, you know. But we were convinced he was going to disallow it. Mm. I mean, there's no reason to disallow it. As we saw on the replays, I did get a clear touch and I wasn't offside. So there was, there was nothing wrong with the goal. And did you, did you sort of, at any point, as the game kept going on and on and, you know, you got, got into that last minute or so, did you just think, now we're not we're not going to do this. We're not going to get this this second goal before obviously you helped the ball on and, and Michael Thomas burst through the centre. It was a funny one, but look, looking back, I I never thought, oh, we've we've lost it. Uh, I, I I still thought we had a chance. I still thought we had a chance. I mean, the cock started whistling for full time about ten minutes to go. I think there was no clock in the stadium that night. 
so we were relying on our bench for hand signals as to how long was left and you know we thought he was going to blow his whistle any minute but I still felt, felt fairly calm but when the ball was rolled back to John Lukic and you know he's preparing to kick it off I thought well I've got to win this header then all of a sudden he throws it to Lee Dixon so I automatically show for Lee in the channel that I've done a thousand times before and He's fizzed the ball up to me, a brilliant pass. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to take this first time because the whistle could go at any second. So it was a risky kind of touch and turn, but it, it came off perfectly. And I just saw a yellow blur in my peripheral vision. And it was Mickey making a barnstorming run like he did all night. And uh, I just tried to find him with a little dink and it, it worked perfectly. And of course, he, he, he got the break of the ball and we're all just running behind him because... We can't in influence the play. We can't get near him. We can't support it, really. And we can see the red shirts converging on him. And because Mickey was so laid back, you know, he'd never do anything in a hurry when he didn't want to do it. We thought he was going to leave it too late. Uh, and Ray Houghton's boot was, you know, he was a millimetre away from getting a touch on it. Uh, but, you know, he, he was waiting until Grobelar made his move and until Mickey made his. So, uh, <laughs> incredible moment when it hits the back of the net. and. Um, you go to him and he's doing a silly backflip. So we go over to the fans and celebrate. But then the ref's going, come on, lads, back to back in your own half. There's still a bit of time left. So he's, even then, you don't know how long is left. But then the ball once again goes back to Lukey. And this time, I know he's going to kick it. And I think as long as I don't let, I think it was Alan Hansen behind me, as long as I don't let him win this header and head it back up, we've won the title and it just grazed off my head and went towards the corner flag and that's when the whistle went and uh, all hell broke loose really. Um, so uh, it, it was a night never to forget and, and a night that never be beaten really. You could never beat that for drama. Arsenal comes streaming forward now and surely what will be their last attack? A good ball by Dixon finding Smith. For Thomas, charging through the midfield! Thomas, it's up for grabs now! Thomas! Right at the end! An unbelievable climax to the league season. Well into injury time, the Liverpool players are down absolutely abject. Aldridge is down, Barnes is down, Delgrish just stands there. Nichols on his knees, McMahon's on his knees. Suddenly, it was Michael Thomas bursting through. The bounce fell his way. He flips it wide of Grobelar. And we have the most dramatic finish, maybe in the history of the Football League. Um, a word on George Graham, who, who made you the focal point of that attack uh, in, in what was a formidable Arsenal team. Um, sum him up as a, as a man-manager and a tactician. He was a good tactician. Yeah, he was. I mean, for he was an he was an attacker, wasn't he? And they called him Stroller, and he was totally different as a manager to what he was as a player. Uh, we used to talk to Frank McClintock, his old teammate, and he couldn't believe what George had become. Um, he, he he always used to say, "Oh, we'd have been having a chat after training about tactics and that," and George would be the first one to say, "I'll oh, put the ball away. Let's go and have a drink," you know. But when he was a manager, he he was into his tactics and he. He was keen on working the defence more than, well, before he worked the front lads. And, you know, all that on the training ground is what brought the back four together and what made it such a good unit. Um, 
tactically, uh, he was annoyed in 91 when we got knocked out of the European Cup by Benfica because we were playing 4-4-2 that we did at the weekend in the league. But we got caught for being a bit too open. And so when we qualified for the Cup Winners' Cup uh, a couple of years later, he decided to go to 4-3-3. Uh, so he'd switch from the Saturday to the Wednesday from 4-4-2 to 4-3-3. And we'd work from you know Monday, Tuesday on, on the new shape. We worked hard on it. And, and it worked. Got us to two finals on the trot. Um, so he was quite astute in that regard. Um, on the training ground, really demanding. Uh, once he'd seen your best, he, he wanted it on a consistent basis. Uh, you know, he, he wasn't the first to a bollocking on the training ground or, you know, on a match day. Um, but uh, he was one of those figures that when he when he trotted around the corner, you know, on the training ground, all of a sudden you thought, oh, here we go, we've got, we've got to be at it today. There were, there were very few occasions where he didn't turn up to training. And, and on those times, you know, you relaxed a little bit. You thought, oh, oh we'll have a jolly up today. The gap is not here. But um, he was he was usually there. And, um, yeah, he, he was good. I mean, he was great for me. Um, he, he was great for everyone, really. He pushed them. It was only in the last few years where we became, you know, we fell off our standards. We became a cup team and we're still successful. But um, it was nothing like in the first four years. Uh, and that's when he became a bit more kind of savage in his criticism, if you like. I think he was getting frustrated. Mm. The whole bung thing was bubbling under, you know. But uh, we've all got... He used to say, actually, he says, you might not enjoy working for me, but look at the end of your careers when you've been successful. Well, you'll appreciate it and, and you know you'll be pleased that we, we worked as hard as we did well we usually ask our guests at this point what happened to them after they stopped playing football but we know fine well you became one of Sky Sports top pundits and commentators and you've also written your autobiography which you mentioned um, but to a lot of the people in, of a younger generation you're possibly more familiar rather than a footballer as one of the voices of the FIFA computer game series alongside Martin Tyler for the last decade or so I'm intrigued about that and how it works because obviously when you're commentating on a game, you know, you're seeing things happen and you're commenting spontaneously on it and, you know, bringing your uh, experience to bear and, and what you're seeing there. But the pro process for FIFA and the computer games, do they just give you a script and then basically you're going into being like a voiceover actor and you have to kind of, you know, give it your best, you know, as if you're working in Toy Story or one of the, the Disney animations. Um, they they give you scenarios, but it's not a script. So you put your own words, you know, describe a free kick from 20 yards that goes over the wall and just over the bar and give us six versions of that. It, it's that kind of uh, guidance. Uh, and obviously it's all in your imagination. You're not, you haven't, you're not looking at a monitor, any action or anything like that. So uh, you have to have quite a good grasp of words to find different ways of explaining yeah. things. Otherwise, Otherwise, the same phrase comes up. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's been brilliant. I did it for nine years with Martin. Martin did it for longer, um, and we loved every minute of it. Um, it was it was a great thing to be involved in. And as you say, kind of ten year old will come up to you and and, and want your autograph or want your selfie, you know. And and it's all because of FIFA. Uh, mm. People sometimes recognise you by your voice uh, before your your face, really. And I've I've been abroad at times where people. I was in Israel once and. 
doing an interview for Sky and, and this lad came around the corner. He didn't speak much English, but he recognised my voice because a lot of foreign countries do use the, mm. the English commentary. So uh, it's been it's been a really fun thing to, to get be involved in. Um, it's, it's quite tough. You know, you're in that studio for four or five hours and, you know, constantly thinking of different ways to say things. And, and at the end of it, your, your brain's spinning. But uh, yeah, it was good fun. We're not we're not involved in FIFA 21, unfortunately, but we had, we had a great run. Um, I don't think there's been many uh, computer game teams, voiceover teams that have lasted that long. So we're mm. both, both honoured to be involved. Well, we're giving you the keys to our time machine now, Alan, and we're going to let you go back to 1984 to this uh, this interview, uh, and we're going to say to you, give Alan Smith of that time one piece of advice to help him through his career and through life. What would it be? Um, save, save every second as a footballer. Sometimes you can get caught up in that bubble and you get down. Um, enjoy it. Uh, try and enjoy it. There were lots of times when I didn't enjoy it. And I think that would probably be the case. Sometimes I see players out on that pitch with a laugh and smile on the face. And I think I should have been a bit like that more. Um, not. I don't know. Everyone, everyone tries hard. Everyone wants to do the best, but at the end of the day, you, you're playing the game that you love for a living, and you've got to you've got to savor every moment of it. Um, I, I was so lucky to do what I did, um, but you know, in life generally, no, nothing comes without hard work, does it? Uh, you, you you might get a stroke of luck, but it, it's take uh, making the most of that luck. You know, grabbing it, grabbing it, and and carrying it, and and working hard and. Um, you know, being being dedicated to whatever you're doing, um, and it's an old cliche, but you you only get out what you put in. So, uh, I, I tell me, I say that to all, all kids who, who wanted to be footballers. What what tip would you give? And it's just practice, practice, practice every single moment that you can, because uh, nothing comes without that. Well, Alan, uh, we've come to the end of the episode and uh, thank you so much for sparing your time to join me. It's been an absolute privilege to speak to you, to look back at this old uh, shoot interview. Um, obviously, our listeners can hear you regularly on Sky Sports and find you on Twitter at Nine Smudge. Uh, and I assume that your book, Heads Up, is still available through all the usual channels. Yeah, it's still out there, I think. Probably Amazon or whatever is the best way to get hold of it these days. But yeah, yeah, it's still there. I'm, I'm proud of it. I, I wrote it myself because I've, uh, I've, I've worked for The Telegraph for 20 years. I write a column for The Standard now. So, you know, it would be silly not to have written it myself. So, um, yeah, uh, I, think, I think it's quite an enjoyable read, even though I say so myself. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, Alan. Okay, Mark. Nice to meet you. All the best. And you. All the best. Thanks for listening to What Happened to You. You can find us across all the main podcast platforms, so please don't forget to subscribe. For updates about future guests and new episodes, follow us on Twitter at WHTYPod. For extra content related to What Happened to You, including the original interviews that inspired this episode, visit our friends The Set Pieces at www.thesetpieces.com and follow them on Twitter at The Set Pieces. We'll be back again soon, so until next time, Goodbye.